Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Bant, and along with me on our latest journey back to the 80s is my co-host, Jason Masick. Hello, Jason. You know, um, if I if I can take a moment here, uh, I mean this. What I'm about to say, I feel a lot of love in this room. I don't know, maybe it's me, but I'll tell you something. It, it was here a minute ago, and it was really beautiful. So at this moment, I think it's really important that I see all of your breasts. Oh, that's right, listeners. Today's movie is the 1982 comedy Night Shift, starring Henry Winkler, Shelley Long, and Michael Keaton, directed by Ron Howard. This movie is rated R with a running time of one hour and 46 minutes. So what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local mom and pop video store to rent this movie, this would be the description you would find on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. The pressured world of Wall Street finance drove Charles Lumley III up the wall. Now he works nights at the New York City morgue. All is quiet until Billy Blaze Blazejowski bursts in one night. An idea man with more solutions than there are problems. Billy's new brainstorm will enliven the morgue and put Billy and Lumley on ice in their own cell block. Directed by Ron Howard, Night Shift is a breakneck comedy rife with ideas, mostly hysterical. Happy Days veteran Henry Winkler is low-key Lumley in a performance that surprises and delights. Cheers alumna Shelley Long also scores in a role far removed from prim barmaid Diane. But the casting triumph is Michael Keaton in his movie debut as Sly Billy, launching a rich career that led from Mr. Mom to Beetlejuice to Batman. With Keaton on hand, this night shift is all play, no work. Night shift. Night shift. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to just throw a little bonus in here, Bill Bant, uh, the tagline for the movie. Ever since two enterprising young men turned the city morgue into a swinging business, people have been dying to get in. Yeah. Yeah. So that was what's on the box. Um, Let's move on to earliest memories of the film. Jason, why don't you start us off? I will. And I'm going to start us off by saying good evening, Bill. Hello. How are you? And thank you. Thank you, Bill Bantz for choosing this movie to do a pod upon because this was awesome. And wow, uh, I'm I, just a, a real delight, a true joy. This one was a gem. Uh, and I'm going to tell you my earliest memories of this film, Night Shift from 1982, are exactly nothing. <laughs> because I've never seen this movie. I was surprised when you told me that. I know. I like I'm a little embarrassed, a little ashamed. I'm a little flushed in this moment in admitting that fact. But I'd never seen this movie. I'm a fan of Ron Howard. I'm a fan of everyone in the film. I just never got around to it. So to be honest, obviously I'd heard of it in passing. I knew it was a quote unquote cult classic for many, as far as 80s rom-coms go. I really had like a faint early memory. It would be images of just Keaton, Winkler, the morgue, and that's it. So there you go, Bill Bent. Quick and easy. Yeah, earliest memories. Yeah, 
So first timer for me. I still shift. managed to stretch that out a little bit. It's amazing how much I can fucking talk. Oh my God. All good. All good. So for me, um, so I had seen Mr. Mom already. So I knew who Michael Keaton was. And I actually watched this with my parents on cable. And of course, Michael Keaton. That's all you can think of when you think of this movie. Michael Keaton. The the entrance, his Walkman that he somehow the recorder that he somehow listens to music and does his ideas on all the time. But the, the one thing I remember the most is that end scene when Chuck is about to get in fight with the owner of that club. Of the gentleman's club, yeah. The, yes. And Michael Keaton's gonna come in to save the day. Mm-hmm. And he just does that jump off the balcony and just does the <laughs> belly flop on the floor. Like me and my parents, we all lost it. We all lost it. We just thought that was the funniest thing. So okay. of course the ground broke my fall. Yes. And of course, being maybe 11 at the time, the humor in this movie was just right up my alley. It's like, Oh, parents I'm are actually, sure. Yeah. As my, a kid. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's some um, great sight gags that still make me laugh today, but. Yeah. So being an 11 year old, your parents letting you watch an R rated movie, not telling you to leave the room anytime there's going to be boobs on the screen or anything like that. That was just great. That was just great. I loved it. And I always remembered the song at the end, too. That's what friends are for. And I remember getting older when Dionne Warwick did the. Um, oh, yeah. We'll have to cover that, but we can talk about it right now. Go for it, Bill. Yeah. Keep just going. going keep going. Yeah. I always got so upset when Dionne Warwick covered that. Because she was getting all these accolades. And I was like, wait, that's the movie from Night Shift. <laughs> See, I'm the opposite. Some, I never someone, had seen the film. So, yeah, I've only known the Dion Warwick version. Yeah, I was like, someone else sang the song. Why Why are they getting the awards? I don't I don't get it. I didn't Because I didn't realize at the time it was Burt Baccarat did both versions. So I was I, I was mad. I was like, no, someone else did the song first. Why is Dion Warwick getting all the credit for it? Not knowing that they knew... Like it wasn't explained to me as, you know, as a teenager that no, it's okay. I mean, I know people always remade songs, but usually you don't remake a song where it's like number one song of the year or winning awards and stuff like that. So that always bothered me. So every, every time I hear that song, I always think of the Rod Stewart version first. Cause I'm like, that's the one that came out first. That's the one I like more. But now that I've gotten older and I understand, I'm like, no, it is a very good song. And, you know, you got Stevie Wonder in it and Elton John and Gladys Knight and Dion Warwick. Right. It is a great song. So I want to give it credit where the credit is due. But it did come in this movie first. Wow. You're still yeah. passionate about it. You have yes. developed an understanding and some compassion. I understand. However, you're still you're still passionate about uh, yeah, Burt and Rod Stewart, apparently. And I, you know, I wonder if he does perform that ever. Or he Rod just, Stewart. Like, yeah. Yeah, I, I would actually love to see him perform it because he does his own backup vocals on the song, on the track, which cracked me the fuck up, man. I'm listening to it going, oh, my God, this is the seventh version of this song I've heard because there's eight different orchestrations of That's What Friends Are For within the film. And then we have Rod Stewart's version during the, the credit roll at the end, and you hear him doing his own backup vocals. And I'm like, boy, he's putting a pull in double duty on this one. Rod Stewart, you go for it. So, yeah, it would be. I wonder if, yeah, he works it into his set. Yeah. Yeah. Great stuff, man. I'm glad you just brought up the fact that uh, when Keaton rolls in as uh, Billy Blazjowski with his 
Walkman, which he never actually calls a Walkman. He just calls it a tape recorder. Yes. Which I think was interesting. I didn't know if, when did the Walkman officially come out? Like the, the Sony Walkman, because that is a brand name, correct? Yes. So I wonder if there was, yeah. So I wonder if there was, because I didn't come upon it in my research, but it made me curious as if there was some sort of trademark issue. Uh, That would make sense. Yeah. Because immediately when he called it a tape recorder, I was like, because we watch these films, right, Bill? And there's things that are quintessential 80s about these movies. And immediately when he pulls out the headphones and tape recorder, it's a nostalgic thing. It's it's identifiable with the 80s. And so is Walkman. It's just a go-to. It's like calling tissue Kleenex, right? You just call it Kleenex, even though that's a brand name technically, right? Yeah. You can go down the list. Or Xerox copiers. Yeah. There you go. So I was just for some reason, instinctually thinking he was going to say Walkman, but he says tape recorder and never does say Walkman. 1979 debut of the Walkman. Go. Boom. Yeah. So it was, it was around. Yeah. Cause I never understood that how he could record and listen to music on it at the same time. I'm like, that doesn't work that way. Right. <laughs> That's true. Cause he is listening to music and then he records. So he must be ruining all of his recordings. <laughs> yes. Cause he's just taping over all the songs. He'd be, if he listened back to the tape, he'd be like jamming out to his tunes and then be like, uh, this is Bill's idea, number 186. Be like, Damn it. I ruined that song. Yeah, remember you had to put the, like the little tape on the tab of the cassette in order to get oh, it. Oh, right. So, yeah, cause, so you can. Because you would break the tabs off so you wouldn't be able to record or, off yes. or, or over it, correct? Mm-hmm. And then you'd have to put tape over it in order to record on that cassette again. Yes. Half our audience has no idea what we're talking about right now. Right. It's okay. <laughs> what is a Walkman? What is a cassette? Why are you talking about a tab? I don't what get is it. a Walkman? All right. So let's move on to stuff they might know. <laughs> well, I, I do have some initial thoughts, man. Go ahead. Uh, regarding this, because this is my first viewing of Night Shift. Uh, I want to hear oh, it. Oh, man. I want to hear it. This is what 80s comedies do to me, man. They just make me happy. I've said this before because... Whether it be Real Genius, Risky Business, you, we can go down the list of pretty much all these movies, man. They make me happy, but that's why we're doing this podcast. But this is quintessential. Like, I just laid back and had a smile on my face for an hour and 46 minutes, man. I laughed out loud more than a handful of times. Just burst out in laughter. And it's the kind of movie that makes me feel better about everything. This is the cure to all my ailments, Bill. And I'll just leave it at that. As far as my just initial reaction upon first first viewing, some other initial thoughts right from the open. Pay up, sucker. Oh, man. <laughs> what a great. Op- I was not expecting this bill bad from this comedy because I can't. So I have these ideas in my head because I know Michael Keaton's style a little bit. He has that kind of frenetic kind of uh, neurotic style about him. And Henry Winkler, I figured, was going to play the straight man in this. And so. I kind of knew the general premise and the plot. And so, but this movie starts off with a chase sequence between competing pimps. I totally forgot about this. Totally forgot about the opening. Yeah. Right. It's like, uh, that's funny because that's usually, that's my department is forgetting the opening. Yeah. I I figured you would appreciate that, that I actually forgot the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) So, this opening, we have. You know, it just opens with a nighttime scene, downtown New York City, and they capture it really well. I've been to New York City. Fortunately, what a wonderful town, man. City that never sleeps. And in this movie, it's not sleeping. 
and we have some prostitutes uh, meandering about and you got the smoke coming up from the manhole. And I'm like, yeah, give me some hookers, pimps, some sax music in the score, some smoke coming from a manhole and a chase in New York City. And we got ourselves a comedy. Yeah. I'm like, what? <laughs> Wait a minute. But I was in, man. And I say pay up, suck up, because there's a, a there's just a sidebar here between two guys playing basketball on a you know street court, like in an alley, basically. And this uh, pimp comes running through and he thinks he's getting away and he goes back to his his apartment, which is several floors up next to this basketball court and then gets basically tossed out the window. But in the meantime, these two guys playing basketball make a bet. One of them says he can slam dunk. And so this whole thing goes on. And after the, you know, the, the guy gets thrown out, this pimp gets thrown out the window by the competing pimps and lands on the ground. And the two guys that are playing basketball are kind of are shocked by it for a moment. But then just nonchalantly, one of them goes, pay up, sucker, because he won the bet. He actually got the slam. So anyway, it's just a great way to open the movie. I laughed my ass off, man, when that, that dead pimp, they take him to the morgue. And that's when we, we get introduced to our protagonist. Uh, Chuck Lumley, played by Henry Winkler. And there's a cop down there who brings a local prostitute down to the morgue to identify the body. And that prostitute is Shelley Long. Belinda is her character name. And she identifies him as her pimp. And his name, the pimp's name is Franklin Delano Roosevelt Jones. Yes. Dude, I'm already laughing out loud. So, <laughs> dude, I, I, I just, uh, what, what a pleasure, man. Franklin Delano Roosevelt Jones. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned this. Michael Keaton is Billy. He does come in blazing and he is bouncing. And I mean, the, he is the idea, man. And dude, I thought he was just like, is this guy coked out of his mind? Uh, we talked about the tape recorder. He's rattling off ideas. What a great entrance. Any abuse of Chuck, a.k.a. Henry Winkler in this movie cracks me up. I just think it's the funniest thing because there's a lot of physical comedy and also just moments where Henry Winkler gets the shit just a, like kicked out of him or it's just he's he's walked over and it's just awful. And he takes it and half the time he has a smile on his face and it's great, whether it's the dog chasing him at the apartment or he's getting pushed in between lobby doors. I'll br- I may bring that up later. There's just a moment that's brilliant. Uh, he gets a saxophone just right in his face while he's on the subway, which just made me laugh out loud. Like he just is always in the wrong time at the wrong moment and just being abused by strangers. It's really funny. So I love the fact that Henry Winkler literally is playing the opposite of the Fonz. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure we'll talk about this a few times, but this is a Happy Days reunion of sorts because you have Ron Howard directing and now and Henry Winkler uh, starring in this film. And there's some other connections, too. But He's quite opposite and chose this role purposefully because of that. He got to play a little bit. He said he actually, I think there's a quote. He said he wanted to be the Richard Cunningham this time. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of fun to watch. And uh, I was like watching this going, wait a minute. So Risky Business then comes out the next year, 1983. So I'm thinking, wait a minute. Was this, was this a thing? Should, is this something that I missed out on in the early eighties? Was I, should I have started a prostitute ring out of my basement because this was kind of a, a, a plot concept, almost trope there for a minute in yeah. 80s com, rom-coms or comedies in general, right? Yeah, just pitch meetings like, we need to do movies about prostitutes, I think. Yeah. That's, <laughs> like, that's, that's, we've got Night Shift, we've got Risky Business. I am ashamed to say I haven't seen Dr. Detroit either. 
there's um what am i missing there's another one you had uh best little whorehouse in texas which sure kind of came out the same time so yeah it's just kind of weird a lot of movies about ladies of the night ladies of the night so speaking of boobs bill ban uh there are no boobs in this movie until the 56 minute mark i was surprised by that yeah already I, mean, I mean by boobs i mean naked boobs uh <laughs> Uh, one other notable thing in this film, no seatbelts. Michael Keaton, Billy Blaze, Blaze Jasky is get finally gets like his pimp mobile, which is great. I still want to know what that car was, what model and make and model that was. Oh, I couldn't yeah. figure it out. I even I paused it and I, I'm like, I don't know what the hell this car is, but they're not wearing seatbelts. It was just funny. Yeah, I'm like, yep, there you go. That's the 80s. Yeah, that's a good call. <laughs> there is, there's even the scene when they're coming back from the um, night court. I don't think anybody in that car is wearing seatbelts either. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. Totally. I'm surprised totally. now if, yeah. if they don't. Now if they put it on TV, it was R for you know no seatbelts. Right. So now because they always mention R, you mean smoking. R for reckless. R for reckless. Yes. Uh, so uh, yeah, speaking of the pimpmobile, I actually rewound it for a moment just to you know just to see what kind of vehicle it was, which again I, I still have no idea. But I, on first watching, I missed the fact that he's got the Rolodex hanging from the, the top of the car. Did you see that? Yes. It's brilliant. Like where the rear view mirror would be, basically. Yeah. There's the Rolodex of, I'm assuming all, you know, would be all the, the prostitutes' names and maybe the Johns and the all their business dealings or whatever. But all the numbers, you know. Uh, so those are just some initial thoughts, man. It, it, this movie's a freaking blast. And I love... Henry Winkler and Michael Keaton's chemistry. I thought they were a great duo. I thought they played off each other great. Yeah, they did. And I am a Shelley Long fan. I always have been since, uh, you know, Cheers was in syndication when I was a kid, whether it be on Comedy Central or some other, uh, other you know, local station. Because I don't even know if there was Comedy Central when I first got turned on to Cheers, uh, when I still had to get up and, you know, change the channel on the television like turn the knob. So there was no Comedy Central then, but I watched the early Cheers episodes and I was a fan of Diane. I'll be honest, this is probably the only thing of Shelley Long's that I like. Night Shift? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm not I'm not a big fan of hers. Yeah, I can I could I could see how she would be a little bit polarizing. Yeah. But maybe when we go back and, and see some of our other films in future episodes, maybe. Maybe it'll change. Money Pit? Oh, that's true. That's yeah. That's a good one. All right, you got me there. Okay. You got All me right. There. All right. Good. Good. I'm gonna. I'm. You know. Nice call. You to come over to my side on the, the Shelley Long take. All right. So yeah, I just wanted to yeah throw that out there. Some of those thoughts. Nice. Now, this is our second Ron Howard film. So that's the first right. One that we did was Splash, and then uh, so this was his debut. Man, I, watching this thing, I'm just like, how much he has progressed. I mean, granted, he's been making films for a long time. But it would definitely be interesting to see if he had to go back and do this one over how much different he would do it. Because like some of those, that's a great point. Sure. Because some of the shots did feel very like sitcommy, like mm-hmm. like a feed camera kind of. And I was like, oh, yeah, you can kind of tell this is his first film. But there's things in here that are good. But no, did I think he would become what he is now from watching this? No. But you can see that there's elements there absolutely oh yeah 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 absolutely i think he handles it quite well as far as a comedy goes uh there's no question but yeah there's 
there's a couple of maybe it's edits and I don't even know if that's a directorial issue or more of an editorial issue, but uh, there are moments in the film where it feels, but you see such an improvement from this, to splash too. No, oh, yeah. Director, you know, directorial style. Um, so it was kind of interesting to just watch that. I was just kind of watching it like, yeah, it's okay. You could see what he's doing as a first time director. Right. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. These are things he definitely cleaned up in future films. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, great point. And I am a for sure a Ron Howard fan, but uh, yeah, that would be a, a fun question to ask him. Mm-hmm. If he could go back, what would he change? Yeah. How would he do it differently? And I would have to think part of it because I immediately I went into writer mode actually. And I was thinking maybe because I have, a, I think a note that I will come upon later regarding character development, yes. that there was a possible way they could have gone or something they could have fleshed out. And I, I would have to assume that would be something he would kind of delve into a little bit more right? with uh, our two main protagonists, but uh, I'll save that for later. Okay. All right. So let's uh, move on to our next segment, which is favorite scenes. Jason, why don't you start us off with some favorite scenes from night shift? All right. So I'm going to go with this particular scene where, okay. So to kind of lay some of the groundwork here, or plot development for our listening audience. We have our protagonists, Chuck Lumley and Billy Blazjowski. Am I pronouncing that right? I hope so. Yes, uh, and they are working the night shift at the New York City morgue, and they've concocted this business plan basically to help out Shelley Long, Belinda, her being the prostitute, and her friends, the fellow prostitutes that used to work for Franklin, who met his demise at the opening of the film, which we just discussed. And uh, so they're taking over because uh, they're down on their luck and they need to make an extra buck. And that's basically, I'm just giving you the really, really abridged version here. This is the cliff notes, Uh, but they're turning the morgue into a brothel. So there you have it. And business is booming. They're doing really well uh, because they basically have no supervision at the morgue during the night shift. And they have their way, and the ladies are coming and going. Chuck is uh, crunching the numbers, and Billy's handling the ladies, driving them back and forth uh, to their tricks, etc. And business is going so well that Chuck's getting a little overwhelmed. So this begins with this one of my favorite scenes here. It begins with Chuck a bit stressed out, and he's drinking a glass of uh, Alka-Seltzer. Oh, yeah. And I love this because... Billy comes in and he's all jazzed and he says, yeah, I got to get, you know, give this girl a ride. And you have Henry Winkler at the desk, stressed out, drinking his Alka-Seltzer water and uh, saying, you know, yeah, you need to loopy needs this. Right. He calls her loopy. <laughs> Lupe is just funny. Uh, that's one of the, the, the prostitutes. And he says, yeah, she could use a ride for this, that, and the other thing, but I'm really stressed out, man. And Billy's like, what, what's the problem? He's like, well, this is just like how it was when I worked on Wall Street, because we know that Henry Winkler's character, Chuck Lumley, used to be an invest- investment counselor, I believe. Or That's not right, yeah. But it got to be too much for him, and now he is just working the night shift at the morgue. He got stressed out during that job, that job, and now he's stressed out because he just feels like he's like something is about to go wrong. He's losing his hair. He's like he, he like shakes the hair out of his head, and he's like, that hair belongs in my head. <laughs> and... and <laughs> Uh, it's great because he says to Michael Keaton, he says, as we sit here and idly chat, there are women 
female human beings rolling around in strange beds with strange men, and we are making money from that. And Billy's reply is, is this a great country or what? It was just just brilliant because Billy is laid back and he's quirky and goofy and he doesn't see anything wrong with it. He's just having a blast making uh, money hand over fist. And during the scene, you so you have the contradiction and the juxtaposition basically between Chuck, who's stressing out, he's losing his hair. He says his gums are bleeding. He's freaking out. And you have Billy, who's the, the opposite, who's talking about how he's he's stuffing Kleenex into his shirt so he can look like he has big muscles because so the prostitutes don't get beat up by their Johns or the Johns are intimidated by him, basically, if he comes around so he can protect his girls. And so he's pulling out the Kleenex out of his shirt. And, and Henry Winkler is just like, as most he is most of the movie, when looking at Billy, just like dumbfounded, like, what are you doing? It's like, oh, yeah, I know. I just these are my muscles. <laughs> <He's> like, yes. <laughs> and so um, I l- just love the fact because you really get to see, like I said, the juxtaposition, like the two different characters here in full bloom. One is, you know, completely the nice guy stressed out looking at, you know, he has a conscience about the entire thing. And then you have. Michael Keaton just being quirky as all hell and hilarious. And not only does he pull out the Kleenex from the shirt, then he starts shoving it down his pants yeah. while he's talking. Because as Henry Winkler is freaking out, of course, then Billy, Michael Keaton, pulls out his tape recorder and goes, "This here's my next idea. I'm going to turn Chuck into a man. And, he's, and then he gets up and he takes the Kleenex and starts putting it down his own pants. And he's saying, I'm going to turn you into man. You are unbelievable. You are something else, pal. You are some kind of guy. Like he's saying that while he's stuffing the Kleenex down his pants. And of course, Chuck and Winkler looks at him like, now what are you doing? And Billy looks at him and is just like, and he keeps shoving his, like thrusting his crotch out, crotch yeah. out, like to show he's got this big bulge in his pants yeah. from shoving the Kleenex in there. He's like, eh, yeah. Impress the girls. And he just keeps, then he kind of struts out the door and it goes, it, the camera cuts to Henry Winkler and it kind of, there's a dissolve that happens here to the next scene, but you hear the voiceover off screen of Michael Keaton saying, yeah, corn dog. <laughs> That's how the scene ends. Cause in the middle of the scene, he walks in strutting cause he's kind of acting the, uh, the he's really, fulfilling the pimp role, but he's wearing it too. Like he's wearing the leather jacket, the clothing and the style and the whole thing. He like takes off his jacket. And of course he's got the Kleenex stuffed in his shirt, but he also like pulls a corn dog out of his pocket and he like smells it. <laughs> he just yeah. has a corn dog on him. Yeah. Uh, I love it. So at the end, he's like thrusting his crotch outward because his pants are stuffed. And he's like, yeah, impress the girls. Yeah. Corn dog. <laughs> So that's my first favorite scene. All right. So my first favorite scene after watching this movie, this is all I did, Jason, for the last two days. I could not stop doing that. It is the introduction of Billy in the film, Michael Keaton's character. I get it. Absolutely. And so what happens is, as we mentioned before, Chuck works at this morgue. He's been somewhat demoted now to working night shift. Um, the person that was working night shift has been fired. And now Chuck's going to be getting a new replacement. 
and this replacement is Billy, played by Michael Keaton. And as we said before, Chuck is very laid back, does not want any kind of pressure in his life, likes everything meticulous, and he has everything laid out, and he's, he's trying to read his newspaper and just let the night go as it is. Right. And all of a sudden, you just hear this, <laughs> and it's this great shot of the front door, and it's got the um, like the 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 cloud of glass, and you just see the shadow approaching. Yeah, you see Billy's silhouette coming. Yeah, and the door swings, just flies open, and there's Billy and Michael Keaton, and he's got his headphones on, and he just walks in. Hey, hey, how's it going? Hey, 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 and just <laughs> just a mile a minute. He's literally bouncing. Like he's bouncing into the scene, like absolute whirlwind. He's like the Tasmanian devil. And he's like, you want to know, you know why I have this tape recorder? Ideas. And he just starts rattling off like these stupid ideas. Yeah. The line that gets me the most is he goes up to Chuck's desk and there's a picture frame on it. And he right. picks it up and he's like, oh, is this your, your girlfriend, your wife? And you can see like, Chuck's like, don't don't touch the picture. And he grabs it. It's like, that's my fiance. Yeah. And he takes one last look at it and just like, nice frame. And I was like, oh my God, that is such a horrible burn. And I don't and it almost like goes over Chuck's head because it's just so fast. Right. And then he just kind of finishes the spiel and he's like, so what exactly do we do here? That's how it ends. He's just like, what exactly do we do here? And it's just great. It's yeah, great. he's already on to the next thing. Like he's already, yeah, he's moving fast. Yeah, it's just a great introduction for a character he stands out and you just know the rest of the movie like i can't wait to see what this guy's going to do next and he doesn't disappoint throughout the film and it's just a great start like one of my favorite ideas that he talks about is the uh, the tuna fish when he's just like <laughs> that's should, later on yeah yeah yeah, yeah the mayonnaise like, <laughs> to the if, tuna right if yeah because he's first like if we mix the if we put it with mayonnaise with the tuna in the can mix it no, wait, we feed the mayonnaise to the tuna called yeah. Starkist. Sure, yep. <laughs> Stuff like that throughout. The One film. of my favorite ideas is in that opening scene, man, because he's like, yeah, see, I get these ideas because he gets serious for a moment. He's like, I am an idea, man. That's who I am. And I have all these ideas. See, now that's what I have the tape recorder for. But see, look, see here, you got all this trash. See, and he picks up the, the trash out of the trash can. He takes a piece yeah. of paper. He's like, edible paper. You just eat it. See, then it's gone. Gone. No trash. It's gone. It's out of there. It's out of there. <laughs> it's like, like brilliant. That's brilliant. Edible paper. Yeah. <laughs> and even like the visual where he's like, all these ideas are coming at me. He's like, Pop, and he's pretending like all these ideas are flying at him. He's like trying yeah. to block them. It's just, it's just hilarious. And he's just like, ah. Yeah. And he just turns around. It's like, see, and he fakes like he's taking a basketball shot. And he's like, ah, the crowd goes wild. It just made me think of that. Like how, our minds are crazy like that. We can think like that sometimes. I've run into people like that to that. that. So when you see Billy, Blake, like it's that relatable thing that where somebody, I don't know if you've ever had that, like a friend or somebody come into your life or somebody that you just met, someone that is introduced to you and they have, whether it be an insecurity or just a nervous disorder or, what, or uh, a neurosis or whatever it might be, that they have to share everything immediately with you. Oh yeah. It, you know what I mean? Like they just, they need you to know everything about them because in that scene, is that that same scene doesn't Yeah, Because the Henry Winkler is going to give him a tour of the morgue and yes. Billy starts sharing about, he's like, 
Yeah, I just went, I was, went home the other day. I'm going to tell you this, but I went home the other day and I caught my girl in bed with another girl. Yeah. And he's like, like, whoa, you don't need yeah. to be telling me this. But there are people like that. Look, I'm not saying there's anything wrong. It's just about we, we all do have boundaries, you know, and Chuck definitely has boundaries. Yes. And Billy crosses all of them. Repeatedly. Yeah. But that good call on that scene, Bill. You, I, that, ha, that needs to be in there for favorite scenes, Billy's introduction. Yeah. Your turn, Jason. What do you got sure. There? So uh, my second favorite scene is about three quarters into the film. This is much later on where uh, the brothel slash morgue is in full swing and making a profit. Now, at this point, we understand, well, some a lot of things. Happen. We'll just get to the point that Billy is at a nightclub and he's looking for some more business. And he sees a couple single gentlemen uh, standing at the bar. And because the audience, we have been privy to those gentlemen's conversation before Billy approaches them, we know that they're undercover cops. Billy doesn't know this. So he walks up to them and he says, hey, uh, you guys looking for some action? I know I got some ladies, you know, if you want to. And the, the undercover cops, uh, you know, play their role. And they're like, yeah, sure. Uh, what do you got? You know, we'll go with you. And so Billy's like, yeah, come on. And Billy takes him back to the morgue. And now we also know that meanwhile at the morgue, Henry Winkler has run into a bit of trouble because what happened is here that Billy and Chuck, when they began their brothel, when they started the business, they had taken the business of the these ladies away from the rival pimps that we were introduced to in the beginning of the movie. And these rival pimps come after Chuck at the morgue to off him, to take him out. They're like, you should have cut us in on this business, but you didn't. So now we're going to kill you. And Henry Winkler, of course, is like, please don't kill me. But they basically take him into another room at the morgue and they tape him to this table. And meanwhile, Billy comes back to the morgue with the undercover cops. So now you've got... Billy with two undercover cops and you have Henry Winkler, Chuck with the two rival pimps and there's a big face off guns are drawn. There's a big shootout. And I laughed my ass off because Henry Winkler is taped to a table because he's about to be tortured by the rival pimps. They stuff a hose in his mouth. They're going to drown him. They're going to kill him but he's been taped to this table. Like he's strapped into this table. He can't move. So this entire shootout is above around underneath him as he's taped to this table and he's spinning around. And I was just laughing my ass because he can't do anything. And he's just spinning around. You just hear all the gun. There's shotgun blasts. Everything's shattering around him. And then it's like, you see Henry Winkler just spinning around the table. So bottom line is the rival pimps give up and the cops get him. And Billy walks up to Chuck, who's still strapped to the table and says, man, are you know, and Billy and, and Chuck's like, were you scared? He's like, yeah, I was scared, but man, you, you were just here in the middle of it and you were so cool. You're so calm and cool and you didn't freak out. And I really admire you for that. And Chuck is like, take off the tape because <laughs> he's still taped to the table and Billy hasn't taken him uh, taking them off the table. So I, I just love it because that was one of those sight gags that I thought was ingenious. I thought it was brilliant. And it again, puts Chuck in such a, uh, awkward position where he's extremely 
uh, vulnerable and Billy is just uh, kind of oblivious to his vulnerability. And the fact that he's spinning around and the gunfire is going everywhere just cracks me up. I was laughing at so, so I love that scene. Yeah. And considering you had six people in a room, they blew up everything except hit each other. Man, they're right. poor shots. <laughs> they're terrible shots. Oh, I mean, they destroy the morgue. And the only person that gets shot shoots himself. That's correct. That's basically what happens. Yeah. Shout out to Richard Belzer playing yeah. one of the rival, rival uh, pimps. Yeah. That is a pretty funny scene. I, I was just like, wow. Um, how are they going to clean this up before the day crew comes in? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we can. We'll, we, we'll, we'll get to that maybe in one of our other segments. And Belzer just pulls out that shotgun. You're like, and he missed. Missed. Oh, yeah. Deserved to get busted. But yeah, that is a pretty funny scene where he's literally like it's a table that you would put the dead bodies on. You put the corpse on. Yeah. Yeah. Like for an autopsy or something, you know, or to be embalmed or whatever procedure is necessary. And there he is strapped to it, just spinning around while all the gunfire goes on around him. Oh, it's a tough scene. Um, So for me, my favorite scene is is the ending. And I kind of mentioned a little bit in the memories. So Jason kind of alluded to in the last scene is the gig is up. They find out that Chuck and, and, and Billy are, are running this prostitution ring out of the morgue. So in order for New York to save face, they're just going to sweep it under the table. They're going to offer their jobs back and they can just move on with their lives. Well, of course, Billy doesn't want to do that. Uh, and he's like, no, we should ask for more. And Chuck's like, nope, I'm taking my job. I just want to go back to the way things were, nice and quiet. So they split on bad terms. Chuck and Belinda, they kind right, of that's fall. the love story. Yeah, they yeah. kind of they kind of fall in love, but they kind of have a falling out too. And we kind of get to the end of the movie, and Chuck realizes he needs to be with Belinda. So he goes to find her, and he finds out she has this new job at this gentleman's club. Right. Where She's just starting that night. Yep, that's yeah. her first night. And Billy just happens to work there. As the towel boy. As the towel boy. <laughs> in a Tarzan-like costume. Like, yeah. like if someone wants a towel, he literally comes swinging in on a vine, this fake vine, to give someone a towel. Or, or two, if they need it. <laughs> Brilliant. So, at that point, Chuck professes his love to Belinda. He wants them to be together. Billy is watching this up on the balcony, looking down below. A customer comes up who wants to have a good time with Belinda. And Chuck's right. like, no, no, not at all. And they're about to get in a fight. So here comes Billy to the rescue. And that's when he does the, the swan dive off the top and just right. does a face plant <laughs> on the floor. It. Yes. If oh, that's God, another laugh. You can't not laugh out loud at that. Yes, it is hilarious. And then Chuck stands up to the owner, kind of tells him off, pushes him in the pool, and they run out happily ever after. Great feel-good ending. Yes. And then we get our song, That's What Friends Are For. That's what friends are for. That was little Rod Stewart, a really poor, poor man's Rod Stewart. Therefore, yeah, I love that ending, too, because Billy runs out. He's still wearing the towel boy Tarzan outfit. He's like, it's freezing. Because <laughs> figure it's around January when this happens. Yeah, it looks cold. Yes. Yeah. It's a great feel-good ending. It's a crazy 
goofy scene at the gentleman's club. It's weird and funny and there's a lot of great interactions, but the good guys win in the end and the guy gets the girl in the yes. end. And it's nice because, uh, and the friends remained friends at the end, you know, Billy and Chuck are still friends at the end. Everybody's have all the relationships are still intact and resolved. And, mm-hmm. uh, so that's great, man. And you know, that I'm glad you brought, you actually were talking about my, uh, my last uh, favorite scene, which is the scene that takes place in the lawyer's office, right? Oh, okay. That. Yeah. Uh, because there's just a lot of great stuff that happens in that scene. And you touched on it where, you know, they had been busted for the prostitution ring and they were looking at possibly, you know, doing the time, but the, the ladies of the night bailed them out of jail and they talked to the lawyer and the lawyer says, well, the powers that be don't want uh, anything making them look bad and et cetera. So you're off scot-free. And Billy says, no, we don't have to accept this. We can, you know, we've got them over a barrel. We we can take advantage of this. And Chuck is like, Billy, this is where, okay. I just got a little tangent here. This is where I love Henry Winkler. I feels like was channeling his inner Gene Wilder where he was doing this oh, yeah. very calm, like, and like, and you just were waiting for him to explode. He did that yes. really, he, <laughs> and he would do it throughout the movie. And I'm like, oh, he's going to lose it because yes. Billy just keeps pushing his buttons. Yep. And he did that Gene Wilder thing, but he was kind of, this is the way I believe I put it. He kind of does this soft, softer version of Gene Wilder. He's not quite as neurotic or frenetic as Gene Wilder, but he kind of does a softer, ver- he's like a softer version of it. So when Billy says, no, we're not going to take the lawyer's deal here. And Chuck just closes the, he asked the lawyer to he said, can you excuse us? And he closes the door and he goes back to him and says, Billy, I just want to go back to my old life, my boring, easy, you know, stress-free old life. Will you please let me do that? And Billy's yeah. like, uh, no, <laughs> no. Yeah. And there's a big fight scene between them. So Henry goes at him, goes for his throw. Basically they start wrestling. Billy's got a tennis racket. Chuck steals the tennis racket from him. And I love this quote because it's like, no, I want my old life back. Meanwhile, Billy is like, I couldn't let you go back to your, your old life. I, if, you know, if I did that, I'd never be able to sleep with myself again. And, and that he also says when Chuck is like tackling him and wrestling him on the floor, you hear Billy say, Chuck, I'm wearing white. <laughs> I know that's a great one. <laughs> and then, He's like, uh, Chuck is like, oh, yeah, you want to play tennis? I'm going to kill you. You're going to play tennis with God. Yes. <laughs> my favorite line. I love that not so hard. Uh, I actually wrote those two lines down. Yeah. That's awesome. And, and then Bill, yeah. And Billy is like, uh, as now uh, Chuck is swinging at Billy with the tennis racket. And Billy's like, Chuck, you got to keep that elbow stiff. Like giving him tennis like tips yeah. in the middle of the fight. Love that scene, man. So those that wraps wraps up my favorite scenes, man. That's awesome. That is a funny scene. Those two lines, three lines, but the two of them I did write down too because they make me laugh out loud. He's, yeah. like, he's like literally, Chuck is literally grabbing Billy to just like tackle him to the ground. He's like, Chuck, I'm, we- I'm wearing white. <laughs> just I'm like wearing the- white. <laughs> it's like you don't understand what's going on right now. You're more he never of- gets it. No, he's always on a different page. Yeah, completely. Oh, man. So there, yeah, that just that little fight sequence in the lawyer's office is like chock full of good stuff. That's why I chose it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So moving on, our next segment is 
Swiss cheese and complaints department. And we call this Swiss cheese because... Although this movie is delicious, it does have holes. Yeah, so if it does not fall under Swiss cheese, we just file a complaint with the complaint department. Um, So Jason, what do you have for Swiss cheese or the complaint department? You know, I'm going to do a very general hole. Okay. Um, So I'm going to start off with the Swiss cheese. And here it is, man. This covers a lot of bases, I think. Apparently, you can do anything you ever want at any time on the night shift. So they never, not want, ever get busted by the supervisor who's not there, obviously. And by the way, the supervisor, as Henry Winkler says in the beginning when he's giving, I'm sorry, uh, Chuck says when he's giving Billy the tour, says that there isn't a boss, that it's a supervisor that runs the morgue. So then I'm like, who's the boss? But there's nobody in charge. This Mr. Carboni is their supervisor, but he's not there at night. So for any of the disruption, whether it be the prostitution, the frat party, or the cop shootout, as aforementioned, that occurs in the morgue, there's no accountability, no response or punishment or at all, ever. They never get in trouble from the people that run the morgue. So here, okay, so here's an addendum to this too, is that- Not once throughout this entire, the only time you ever see them take in a dead body into the morgue is in the beginning when Franklin Delano Roosevelt Jones is taken into the morgue in a body bag. Otherwise, you never and not once do you see a corpse or a body. No. This entire movie, like most of the movie takes place in a morgue. That the whole movie centers around that, that set piece, like that set. Yes. We almost saw one once. Oh, during the frat party? Yes. When they play? <laughs> yes. We almost saw one. But who's inside? Who's inside that? Uh, I, what, do you even, what do you call the uh, dr- those drawers that they pull out that hold the bodies? I don't that, know. Just corpse like, drawer? Yeah. yeah, the refrigerator unit? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I always thought about that, too, because I'm like, this is a morgue in New York. The, like you said in the beginning, city never sleeps. There's got to be stuff going in and out of there all the time, too, because in the beginning, Chuck literally says, we need the space. Can we move? the? Can you take the body? Yeah, we need like because they have a high turnover rate, unfortunately, mm-hmm. a lot of dead bodies coming in, unfortunately. So, yeah, because even before except they for start, the go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, because even before they start the prostitution headquarters out of there, like they don't technically have the prostitutes do their job there. It's just every, it's like a call center. Everything kind of goes through and and out through that building. But even before they start that, Billy decides to use the morgue limo or morgue hearse, however you want to call it. Right. Yeah. As a a limo service. Yeah. And he just takes the car out (laughs) and drives people around during the night. Wait a minute. And this isn't like, you know, Timbuktu. This is New York City. Yes. And just two people working at a New York morgue. Not enough. There's just no way for the amount of traffic that would come and go through that that office. Yes. Or that morgue uh, facility. There's no way. Yeah. So that's my just general hole is that they do take like a couple calls throughout like and hang up on them because of whatever the circumstances are in the, within the, the movie and the storyline. But it's just ridiculous how nothing, everything happens in the morgue, but the appearance of dead bodies. <laughs> yep. The city never sleeps except for the morgue. That's basically <laughs> what do you have my friend for uh 
polls or do you have some complaints? Yeah, I got Swiss cheese. Um, All right, let's go for some cheese. So mine is how did that whole operation come together in such a short period of time? Because we find out in the beginning that Belinda is looking for a pimp and Billy decides, Hey, we should, we should be pimps. We should do this for them. And Chuck's, you know, you, you mean love brokers. Yes. Love brokers. <laughs> love brokers. Yeah. <laughs> so what happens is on Thanksgiving night, Chuck gets a call from Belinda because she gets arrested. Correct. And Chuck goes to help her out. They're coming back from night court. And he's got his whole family in the car with him and they're, you know, berating the whole time. And that's when he's like, okay, I'm doing this. I'm doing this. He goes to Billy's and says, Hey, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to knock this out. And then by Christmas, the girls now have a fast food restaurant. They have a Delta plan. They have a health plan. So they whip this whole thing together where they have this booming business within like two and a half weeks. It does happen pretty quickly. Doesn't it? Yeah. That's a great point between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Yeah. That's a month. So, I mean. And Billy makes enough money to buy the, the car. But yeah, now they have this booming business and bringing in tons of money. and Cold hard cash. Cold hard cash. And they do this in two and a half weeks. And the other pimps find out all about it. I was like, that's just a little too fast. You know, you know how I am with the time stuff. This is, oh, yeah. That was, this was just You're absolutely right. Oh, no, no. You are. You are. Uh, this, that's a, this is a legitimate gripe. But uh, yeah, no, I agree. Good stuff, man. So clear something up uh, for me, because you talked about what happened in this film on Thanksgiving evening, because Chuck is entertaining his wife's parents and his own mother uh, for dinner. And they're having a lovely Thanksgiving dinner. And that's when he gets the call from Belinda, the prostitute that lives uh, just a few doors down from him in his apartment complex, whom he has befriended. And she's in dire straits because she's been arrested for assaulting a John. And like you said, he decides to go down there to help her out. And the parents decide to join him in the, the reason that he's like, you didn't have to come down here with me, which is just super awkward. Her, yes. His fiance and her parents and his mother all come down to see his prostitute friend or help his prostitute friend down at the court. And so that's awkward. And the reason is because her, his fiance's father says, well, we paid for the rental car. Might as well get the use out of it or whatever. So yeah, so like, he paid an arm and a leg for it because it was so yeah. expensive. He was going to drive it around. So that's awkward. But on the way back then, that's that moment you, you spoke of when Chuck, the light bulb kind of goes on or the spark is ignited where he's like, he can't stand because he's they're all shoved in the car. They're hitting potholes, which is hilarious. He's like, I can't deal with this anymore. I, I got to get out of my job or get out of my situation in current circumstances and make some serious money. And so he's going to take Billy up on the offer to get this brothel business started. Then we get into like, all right, let's get this business going. And it's great. And it's fun. And we see how they put it together. And it's hilarious because we see Billy kind of start with his proposition and, and defining what prostitution is. And it just it doesn't go anywhere. Fucking hilarious. Initially, that was going to be my whole opening quote initially was just him breaking down the word prostitution oh. on the chalkboard. Brilliant. However, now Chuck's, this is where I'm going into complaints here. Chuck's fiance, Charlotte, disappears altogether. Like she's just gone. So answer this question because she comes back later when they're in jail. I'm skipping ahead here. Yes. And we understand she's been in Indiana. 
Yes. But it was just strange to me that after they go to night court to help Belinda, then Chuck's fiance just kind of falls off the radar. Like she's gone for 45 minutes in the movie. There's no reference to her. She's just not there. And that's kind of when his affections grow for Belinda. And I'm like, where, where's his fiance this whole time? And I, I don't know if I had missed anything. That's what I'm kind of asking you. Cause this was kind of a complaint where I was like, wow, his fiance just conveniently fell off the map here and she's off the grid while this brothel business is getting started and he's starting to fall in love with Belinda. Now that is a good question because they don't really explain it until she shows up at the jail that she's been out. Yeah, a shit ton has happened at this point. But yeah, they don't have like an argument or no. She, there's she no does a thing like I'm going to go back with my parents to Indiana. I'm, I'm we do, you know, we see that he's stuffing cash into like cans and like kind of hiding cash at his mm-hmm. apartment. So it's kind of alluding to the fact that he's. I I, I don't know. She's just gone. That was my kind of my complaint is that she disappears from the movie for that middle section, at least. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, okay. at least they weren't living together. So that they kind of gave him an out. And Belinda literally lives like down the hall from Chuck. Good so, point. So he could do this on the side. But yeah, very good point. That's a that's totally legitimate. That's a good that's a great point. But the, the thing is they they really established the fact that he goes over to see her at, at any available moment. Like that one night he's off, mm-hmm. he goes over to her apartment, his fiance's apartment. Like yeah. he's they are spending as much time as they can together when they can. Yeah. And then she just disappears. Yeah. And then she just randomly shows up and they just say, Oh, she's been out of town. And that's yeah, yeah that's weird. Yeah, that yeah. is weird. No, it's a good one. What else you got, man? All right. So this is another Swiss cheese because uh, the fiance's in Indiana. We find out that Chuck and Belinda kind of fall in love and right. knock boots for, with each other. And, Did you uh, just say knock boots? Yeah. Good for you, Bill. Wasn't Belinda always wearing boots? <laughs> so you mean quite literally yeah, knocking, could, knocking the boots. Yeah. could have been quite literally. So Chuck thinks because they've fallen in love and uh, they've consummated the relationship that Belinda will stop, you know, doing the the prostitute thing and they'll just live happily ever after. But Belinda shows up for work the next day to, you know, keep working. And they have this conversation where Belinda has a, a case. Like I still need to make money. I still need to do something. I can't just stop. And Chuck gets all mad at her about this my feeling was why don't you just make belinda at that point part of the business yeah there's the girls great point yeah not get angry all right if you want this relationship to work she's telling you what her problem is yeah i'd prefer not to do this but i still got bills to pay and all that kind of stuff chuck being the brilliant mind is like okay you'll just work for us yeah oh yeah there's you're you're absolutely right not my wheels were turning a little bit too with that. Cause I was like, Chuck, you got options here for her, man, for employment. Yeah. She, she's got options. So yeah. Think of how much money you've yeah, already made. Think on your feet here, buddy. You can think on like, she's got, there are outs. And I think she's looking for an out. Like she really is desperate to, for an out probably yeah. somewhere underneath, you know? Yeah. And uh, he's got nothing. I was like, dude, 
don't don't get all mad and throw this whole argument out there or you'd be all upset and then have nothing to to present yeah or no you know no options yeah good point that's great man that kind of bothered me i like your hole bill thanks what do you got complaint or hole i'm still i'm still just stuck on knocking the boots man and i was just thinking about them you know maybe you know doing the mattress dance or maybe well, you know, Chuck, they just Chuck, uh, i'm trying to think of some other great like old school euphemisms for you know high in the pickle I think it what it's something hide in the pickle. Yeah, uh I thought sorry. No, it's great. I forget when there's a friend I used to work with who I said, Oh yeah, she's taking her to the boneyard. Like, <laughs> what did you just say? What did you just what just came out of your mouth? That. What did you just say? I haven't heard that one. He's like, it's great. Yeah, yeah, you've never heard that before? I'm like, no, 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 I haven't. Uh, but I'm is- going to say it from now on. So, okay. So here I'm going to file another complaint, but this is a, this is a strange one. Okay. There's a duality to this. Okay. So bear with me. Yes. Because part of me wants to put this down as one of my favorite scenes, but ultimately it's a complaint because this movie is supposed to be a comedy. However, we see that now we've gone from Thanksgiving to Christmas and now the, the ladies of the night and Billy and Chuck and Belinda are all enjoying a Christmas party and they get a little toasty off of the champagne. And that now it's come towards the end of the evening and we have Billy, Chuck and Belinda, a little intoxicated, kind of uh, intoxicated and sitting underneath the Christmas tree and lying down and just relaxing. And all of a sudden, Billy Michael Keaton decides to tell this sad story about his deadbeat dad. Yeah. Bill Ban, I this was upsetting because Michael Keaton is an incredible actor. This is where like I'm I'm kind of torn because his performance is beautiful in this moment. His acting is brilliant and Michael Keaton in his kind of a little bit of his drunken stupor decides to tell Chuck and Belinda that you know, his dad left when he was really young and he left because he thought that he and his mom were ugly and he was just gone. He just, when he was 13, he just disappeared. He was gone. And, and he says, well, she, my mom used to be real pretty. You live with a lunatic and it does things to you. And he says this all too straight faced, his eyes are welling up. Mm -hmm. And then he turns on his tape recorder and he says, and he can barely get the words out. And he says, this is Bill call your mom and wish her a Merry Christmas. And I'm getting choked up just thinking about it. I, that scene, it's a, just a testament to like, I'm like, yeah, okay, this is where you know Michael Keaton's a star because he can play it all. He goes from comedic genius to then dramatic genius like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, am I supposed to be fucking crying right now? Because I am crying and fuck Michael Keaton's good. And I'm like, wait, this is a comedy. Why is this scene here? What's happening right now? I'm so confused. So this is why I put it in, my, in the complaints department. And by the way, that line when he says, you live with a lunatic and it does things to you. I thought he said, loves a lunatic and it does things to you, which I am now going to steal and call my own in my own writing. Okay. I'm going to put, I'm just changing it to loves a lunatic that does things to you. Okay. 
Yeah. But anyway, do you, do you see where I'm coming from on this? Michael oh, yeah. Keaton's brilliant in the scene. It's really touching. But I'm like, what just happened here? Because Belinda's listening to him and she's crying. And then Chuck is like, oh, uh, Billy just went deep here and uh, got serious on us. Yeah, because even the next scene is kind of weird, too, where they ask, they ask Chuck what he's done with his money. And he's like, oh, I'll show you. It goes right into that scene then, too. Yeah. Yeah. And it starts with kind of funny because they go to a cemetery and Billy says that line is like, oh, you bought a cemetery? And he's like, it's already full. This one's full. <laughs> yeah. And then he shows them that he used the money to buy a tombstone for his dad. So in a way, right. it's almost like pointing a finger at Billy. It's like, look, I got a, I got a great dad because I bought him this cool tombstone. I was confused by that. And then, you you know, it was funny. I put this in my notes later, but I'll bring it up now. You see Michael Keaton wearing, because uh, he's they're still uh, drunk, and it's like the sun's coming up, and they're still drunk, and he's yeah. wearing that kind of elf costume. Yes. And he's parading around and the bouncing around as he does around the cemetery in the scene. I'm like, oh, little little Beetlejuice foreshadowing here. Oh, yeah. Like it was goofy. Like I was like, oh, here's the little Beetlejuice coming out. By the way, look forward to doing that movie. Yes. At some point on this very podcast. But yeah, so that was kind of my complaint that that Christmas party scene. But I see what you're saying. Yeah. How it can then it leads into another strange scene with Chuck saying, this is what I've done with all the money I've made so far. I bought my my dead father a brand new headstone. I don't even think he mentioned his dad at any point. The only time his father is mentioned is earlier on when his mother at the Thanksgiving, uh, when they're in the car after the night court scene, they're all crammed right. into the car and place. she's berating his father. Yeah. Saying, yeah. yeah, he actually wanted, he wanted to build furniture with his hands and I talked him out of it. I'm like, oh yeah, you're just a bitch. You're just like this really soul sucking, mm-hmm. you know, and that's what kind of is the impetus for Chuck to like be like, I'm going to be my own man and do what I want to do. And that's when he starts the business with Billy. I mean, that's my take on it at least. But yeah, so again, great scene for Michael Keaton though. Like, I'd be like, man, that's a scene to put on your demo reel. Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> it, it does not fit into place with the film at all. No. However, that's what I was talking about earlier with like, if Ron Howard could go back and do something with this movie, like if there was somewhere where he would want to tweak it, because it made me think that is Billy Blazjowski, does he have a real disorder? As in, because he's so bouncy and hyper all the time, but then he can switch and go to the other extreme so quickly, kind of like on the drop of a dime. Granted, in that scene, he's drunk. However, he does that thing. And you're like, oh, is there, does he have deeper issues that kind of, make him act the way he acts, make him, that's who he, that's why he covers constantly. He's coming with these ideas and he's kind of, I have no, I'm so carefree. I don't have a care in the world. Everything kind of goes over my head and I just walk around like today's my last day on this earth. I'm just going to do whatever I want when he really actually, it comes from a deeper place and would, you know what I mean? Like could, if they remade this movie, if Ron Howard remade this movie today, would they kind of delve into that a little bit more as to why, Billy is the way he is not to make it depressing because this is a comedy. It's still a comedy, but it's kind of like, let's just say it gives him a little bit more of an arc. Like you see, Oh, he's got a sensitive side. He's not just a goofball idiot the entire time. Like there's a real, there's a seriousness to him on some level. 
Yeah. Does that make sense? He has levels is what I'm saying. And, but how, however, uh, you know, I was thinking about this watching the movie going, what is it that Billy really brings to the table here for this business? Like it's Chuck who has the business acumen. He has experience with numbers, with money. Billy is kind of a goof off. Like he's just a goof the entire time. Yeah. Like, am I, am I incorrect? Like I, I've been going, what is, did Billy, does Billy do anything right in this movie? He's what well, he's almost like John Candy in Splash. In Splash. And he feel he does feel sorry for Chuck and is trying to help him because he just sees how straight laced and stiff he is. And that is his mission to try to get him to, to loosen up and, and right. so become he, a man. Yeah. So, like he to find his man right. so manhood. He, he executes the operation. Chuck's always behind the computer and the desk doing whatever. And Billy does go out, drive the girls around, picks them up, gets new clients. Good point. Yeah, that's true. So he, he does. does he, so, yeah. okay. See, that's, that's why it's why you're here, Bill. This is why I, mm-hmm. I, you know, I need you help me help you help me. Right. Uh, so yeah, thank you. Yeah. That's all I needed to hear. Okay. Did you have any other, uh, did you want to file any complaints? Yeah. So, the, I, so did I, you have any other holes that need, no, I think I'm good on the holes, but yeah, a couple complaints. So my first one, because we kind of talked about the night court scene already. What did Belinda expect Chuck to do for her? Because she calls on Thanksgiving and says, my money and my IDs in the apartment. Right. And here we this go. This is great. I thought the same. Okay, go ahead. Okay. We talked about this in summer school too. I can't believe we're already going back to all these other episodes where, okay, I understand why she probably called because the neighbor, but does Chuck have access to the apartment to get money and her ID? Was she expecting him to bail her out? Did she need bailing out this? It was a confusing scene. Like I don't understand exactly. Here's, this is a great call bill. Cause this was, it was confusing. Cause then you first, you're like, wow, why did she call? He was the first person she calls or the only, you know, technically the second. Because she says she called the landlord first and the landlord didn't answer. So at least he's the oh, okay. second call. So at least he's so, the second call. Okay. So she calls him and she says, I don't have my ID or cards or anything on me. They're, they're in my apartment. Can you help me? So she's been arrested for assaulting a trick. Mm-hmm. And she's down at the police station when she calls him. And she's going to be in night court. Okay, so she's at night court. She's being, uh, how's this work, arraigned? Is that the correct? So she's going to be, you know, she's going to see the judge and she's going to plead her case. And so then Chuck shows up with his family and fiance. So what are they supposed to do for her then? What do they do for her? What purpose do they serve being there then? Because we don't see him handing, sorry, we don't see him handing her her ID as if nope. he had gone in like, it's very confusing. Yeah. How does she get out? Because I was expecting the next scene to see her in the car and I had to do like a double take. Where, wait, where is she in the car? Did they bring, they didn't bring her home, but we know she got out because the father says like, I can't believe they let that heartlet out already. Yeah. So I, I was just like, are we supposed to assume that he did get her, her idea so she could at least prove that she is who she says she is. And then she gets arraigned. She gets in front of the judge. So does the trick that John, that's, you know, she had assaulted. They each plead their case. The judge actually rules in her favor and she's released. Yeah, that's that's what we're supposed to that's assume. One, that's one but it's just the way it's filmed and the way it's shot. 
we're just kind of like, wait a minute, did he actually bring her the ID? Was he able to get into her apartment? Then he just shows up with his family. They sit there in the courtroom while she pleads her case. It's kind of a comedic scene in the way that it's presented. And then she's just released, but we don't know where she went. And he just piles in the car with his family and they're just driving over potholes. Like what just fucking happened here? It was confusing. I totally agree. The potholes I found weird too. <laughs> Cause like if it's a pothole, shouldn't the car go down, not up? Are they filled potholes that are overfilled? Is that why the car wow. is bouncing up? That bothered me too. These are literal holes that need to yeah. be there's, there's a hole here. Bill, this is there's wow. Holes, there's holes in the holes. That's all I got holes say. upon holes. Yeah. All right. Uh, what do you got for complaints? Or do you got? I'm, I'm done, man. I'm, okay. I am okay. done. All right. So I got two more. Had it. All right. So had it with this fucking segment. Just so, kidding. all right. Two more complaints. So the next one, what the hell was the deal with the dog? <laughs> we know it's so random. We don't know ever, ever know where it comes from, whose it is. Yeah. Does the dog just go after Chuck? Because I'm never, mm-hmm. if I'm Chuck's friend, I'm never going to his apartment because I got to run out of the elevator or call from outside because we don't have cell phones then and say, hey, unlock your door. I'm coming up because I don't want that freaking dog to bite me in the ass. Right. Because you stand out there knocking to get in and that dog's going to come around. I, I just didn't get the dog thing. I was like, is that the landlord's dog to protect the hallways? And because he's working night shift? Well, the dog only comes after him. You, the funny thing is because you do see that at the very end, the final time when he actually stands up to the dog, that dog runs by other tenants in the apartment. Yeah, because there's other first, people standing around. So at first I thought the dog was just there as like a, a watchdog. And because yeah. he's working night shift... Oh, okay. Stuck right. in the hallway with the dogs. But then at the end, when you see it, just it's like, oh, the dog is, just has a thing for him. But whose dog is it? I, I just, it's, yeah, it's never established. But I, it, I think that's a little bit of an 80s movies trope in, unto itself, where it's a repetitive sight gag of some kind that where you see yes. something keeps happening over and over again. And it doesn't have to make a lot of sense. It's just... Us, that's what it is, just a sight gag. It's just supposed to be funny unto itself. Oh, he's getting a, chased by a, a crazy dog and he's got to be get into his apartment at the very last second, close the door on the dog. Like, oh, it's goofy. He's being goofy and he's afraid. And there'll be something for him to resolve at the end. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. Have your dog bite me. I'm putting it to sleep. That'll be the next step. It had a little bit, it had a bit of a random feel to it. Yes. All right, my last complaint. Yeah. How the hell did Billy get that job? <laughs> Good. That's great. How I thought of it immediately. That's funny. When he first showed up, I actually was thinking that in the back of my mind, too. It's like, yeah. how does this guy get this job? Yeah. Is it that easy to get a job at a morgue? Yeah. And what are the prerequisites? I mean, what kind of resume do you have to have for that type of job? That's where my kind of my mind was going down a little bit of a rabbit hole there. It's like, how do you end up there? Not that there's anything remotely wrong. Somebody's got to do that job. And I appreciate whomever holds that position. But no, I'm sure there's got to be qualifications. It seems like Billy Blazjowski doesn't seem like he would have the qualifications. No, he's not a good driver. (laughs) That's half your job right there. Yeah. Doesn't have a lot of focus. I wouldn't trust him with corpse. No, not at all. All right. That was my final complaint. I mean, I'm glad Billy got the job. But you know what? I am too. Otherwise, we wouldn't have had a movie. Yes. Uh, no, great, great stuff, Bill. 
I agree with your complaining. <laughs> All right. So let's move on to our next segment, which is, hey, it's that actor. It is that actor. So in this segment, we spotlight an actor we've seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut or an actor making an uncredited cameo. So, Jason, who's your hey, it's that actor. Hey, I'm going with an actor by the name of Grand L. Bush. I spoke of one of the the actual cold open to this movie, the opening where the the pimps are chasing pimps. It's basically uh, two pimps chasing one pimp through the streets of New York City and through the back alleys and across a basketball court where Grand L. Bush, his character's name is Mustafa, is playing basketball with a friend. And uh, it's his friend that says, I can dunk and bets him a dollar. And the friend dunks. The friend is the one that says, you know, pay up, sucker. But the other player that bets him is Grand L. Bush, an African-American actor who plays a cop in Lethal Weapon. Uh, He's also in Lethal Weapon 2, but mostly recognizable. And most famously, Little Johnson in Die Hard. So if you know... (laughs) The helicopter sequence. This is one of Marwan's favorites to, to quote all the time. Shout out to our guy, Marwan. This is where you have uh, Robert Davi and Grand L. Bush in the helicopter approaching the roof of the Nakatomi Plaza. Robert Davi is saying, Woohoo, just like fucking Saigon. Hey, slick. And it's Grand L. Bush as Little Johnson who replies, I was in junior high, dickhead. Love that line. Love that line. It's a great line. So that's Grand L. Bush. He appears in this film as Mustafa, one of the basketball players in the opening. He was also in Hollywood Shuffle. He was also Hawkins in the film you might be aware of in the Bond franchise, License to Kill. Yes. He's been in numerous films, but uh, recognizable face. Great actor. You know, just uh, he just keeps showing up in the in the 80s and 90s films. Uh, familiar face. So shout out to Grandel Bush. Who's your hey, it's that actor. Jason, first off, you don't disappoint. Yeah, you called it. I had two possibilities Yeah, that you were going to pick. Okay. And he was one of them. I, w- I should have wrote I should have wrote them down and just flashed it up to you when you said it. Yeah. He was, my, he was my second choice. He wasn't my first, but he was my second. So thank you. <laughs> you got it. He's barely in the movie, too. Yeah, he's just in the first scene. That's about it. Yeah. Um, so for me, there were a lot of choices in this movie. No doubt. But the one that made me go, hey, it's that actor, was Shan Doherty. Shannon Doherty. Yeah, that's crazy, man. She tell, pl- us, tell us about her. Yes. So she plays the bluebird that attacks Chuck in the elevator when he is trying to help Belinda who after she gets punched by one of her Johns. So Chuck is coming home. He gets in the elevator, elevator door open. We literally see Belinda lying on the ground bleeding. And Chuck's like, what's happened? And she's like, yeah, one of my Johns attacked me. And um, so they're going up in the elevator. So he gets her purse and he goes to look through it to try to find something to help her. And right. doors open. It's looking for a handkerchief. Yep. Yeah. And there's Shandarty, all of like probably... 10 years old. Oh yeah. And I recognized her right away. I couldn't believe it. Like, Oh my God. And she thinks Belinda is getting mugged by Chuck. Right. Proceeds to 
called mugging, mugging. Is that what she says? Okay, thank you very much. Yeah, I, I could not tell what she was saying. And then all these little blue, so basically they're like Girl Scouts. Right. They just call them bluebirds. Yeah. Come out and start beating on Chuck. So Chuck. Yeah, with like their boxes of Girl Scout cookies. So it's hilarious. Actually takes a a bigger beating than uh, Belinda did. So this was also the um, feature debut of Shannon. Um, But she was actually in a movie about two weeks prior to that called The Secret of Nim. Well, she was one of the voices of Teresa. Oh, no way. Yeah, but this is the first time we see her on screen. And, of right. course, we know her from uh, Beverly Hills 90210 and Charmed. But my favorite show with Shannon Doherty was Our House with Wilford Brimley. That's wow. what I watched with her. I was I did not watch Beverly Hills 90210 or Charmed. I you just made it sound like you actually watched the show with her, which would have been really cool, too. Yeah, it would have been cool, too. But um, Shannon Doherty. So that's my Hayes, that actor. There you go. And I'm glad you brought up that scene, too, that she's in, because preceding that scene is one of my favorite film moments in the film. And I went back to it to watch it again. And it just, I laugh out loud. Oh, man, this got me when I first saw it, because we the, the film is really establishing Chuck as this pushover. Oh, yeah. And he walks into his apartment complex and you see him using his key to open the front glass doors and he walks and he opens the door and he sees somebody approaching from the other side and he opens the door and the guy comes in through the other side through the door and literally forearms him in the yes. chest and like shoves him into the wall. Wow, I was like, what is that? He just takes it. Oh, I just laughed so hard because it's like, because it's, it really is, makes it overt. It's such an overt action as to he's literally a pushover. This guy just pushes him aside and it just made me laugh. And then he goes to the elevator and we see Belinda on her knees in the elevator and she's been beaten up by her John. Uh, really funny. And that's when Shannon Doherty comes in. But uh, yeah, good stuff, Bill Bant. Are we, uh, are we moving on? Yeah, we're moving on to All facts right. and trivia. What do we have for facts and trivia for? Night shift. I'm going to start with our lead actor, Henry Winkler. Uh, as we know well, he was the Fonz on Happy Days. Is it Arthur Fonzarelli? Arthur Fonzarelli, yeah. Yeah. So um, this is interesting because I didn't even uh, what, know that the show had run for this long. From 1974, it was still, it was in its ninth season, I guess, in 1982. Happy Days it, was? I thought it went 10 or 11. Wow. Yeah. So... Henry Winkler was uh, scheduled to begin principal photography for Night Shift in New York City during his holiday hiatus from Happy Days and uh, would resume the following year following production of the ninth season of Happy Days. So Winkler worked a total of nine days on location in New York City before filming picked up again that day in California. And then uh, so Winkler worked on Night Shift and on Mondays through Wednesdays while concurrently shooting happy days on Thursdays and Fridays. That was a busy dude. Yeah. So it was just interesting then to think about the fact when I'm looking at this movie going, wow, he's still portraying the Fonz at this time and such a different character. Yeah. And at that point, Ron Howard had left as Richie Cunningham probably a year or two earlier. Yeah. I can't remember when, Ron Howard left the show. Yeah, after he left the show, yeah, but basically became the Fawn show. So for him to 
then make a movie and then try to shoot the show when he's becomes the main character. Yeah. That's a busy schedule. And here's also my personal connection to happy days. Somewhat a fan of the show, especially the funds growing up, you know, I caught it in syndication, et cetera, but guess who had a reoccurring role on that show? Strangely enough, funny enough, my acting instructor, Ken Lerner. Oh yeah. Was on happy days. Yeah, absolutely. I was very young. Yep. I do remember that. Another shout out to Ken Lerner, wherever you are. So this is interesting. I did not know this. Henry Winkler was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Motion Picture, Comedy or Musical for Night Shift. There you go. That was, I was surprised at that. I may get into it in my comments later, Bill Bant, but I totally agree with it. I think he's wonderful in this movie. I honestly do. I was, I was actually really, really surprised. That was just my take, man. So I'm not. I, that doesn't shock me. Was that it for that particular? Uh, yeah, that was. Just, yeah, that was just a quick one. Our guy Kevin Costner, he played frat boy number one. This is in the second film role, and Costner can be seen at the frat party, which takes place in the morgue, holding a cup, wearing a college cardigan around his waist, but he's wearing a checkered shirt. You can uh, with a collar. You can clearly see him if you're looking for him. It's when Michael Keaton is uh, he's balancing a beer bottle on his head. Yeah, he's right. They're like in a it's like they're like in a conga line, basically. Yes. And Michael Keaton has the beer bottle balanced on his forehead and he's walking and there's frat guys following him in a straight line. The second guy right behind Keaton is Kevin Costner. And he couldn't be more obvious or, or clearly seen. And he appears in several shots throughout that sequence with the frat party. So there you go. And I think for some reason he's holding a beer in a pickle. I think. Yes, he is. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very unusual. It must have been a scene we missed in that one. Uh, you know, it's a, such a typical frat thing, you know. Yes. Beers and pickles. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Been there, done that. But he's a prominent frat guy in that scene. All right. So, so the facts and trivia. I'm, I'm actually going to dispute a fact. Oh, here we go. In this. So, this is going to be a first. This is exciting. So, everywhere I look, it said that Ron Howard had two cameos in this film. Right. So the first one is when Chuck is going back to his apartment the first time, you see a man making out in front of his building, which is Correct. supposedly his real life wife. Correct. I believe that. Watched it. Definitely looks like him. But everywhere else I looked, it says he makes another cameo as the saxophone player. On the subway. The subway. Yeah. I do not think that is him. Okay. I think they are wrong. I did not look closely enough. So I am not going to argue. I'm not going to dispute your dispute. Jason, I watched that scene 15 times last night because I wanted to confirm this before we talked about it. And I was like, that is not Ron Howard. And the reason I say this is Ron Howard is known for that mustache, right? Mm Mm-hmm. You look at publicity stills for the film, his mustache, mustache with the actors, that saxophone player does not have him. There's no way he shaved off his mustache for that scene. Ah, there you it go. does not look like mustache. This, that face does not look like him. It doesn't move like him. Like even that scene where he's making out and you, he basically has his back to the camera. You can tell he's got the signature hat on that he always wears and you can see the red hair. Uh-huh. But the way the like the saxophone player came in, I love that moment. 
didn't have it's a funny scene it is a funny scene but i don't believe that that's him i really okay i so if i another question to ask him you know exactly yeah yeah honestly if i ever do beat ron howard i am going to ask him that question and you should say you should ask him when you you meet him you'd be like look i got a question if you were to remake night shift today is there anything you would do differently and then also i have a question about were you really uh the extra that played the saxophone in the scene in the subway with henry winkler because i want you to know ron i've studied you i know how you move i've lived in your skin i should be writing all this down so i make sure I, I, i just i would love to hear you say that to him just really creep him out i might leave out the lesson no, because I know I know when you wear a mustache, when you don't wear a mustache, you're like, okay, all Jason, right, this, inter- this interview is over. Go back and look. Go back and watch it. <laughs> and look, <laughs> look at the face. Yeah. It is not. I believe you. I, I totally him. believe you. It is not saying. him. All right. But it's everywhere saying that he's a saxophone player. I'm like, it's not. He's, yeah. he's, he's the guy making out in front of the building. He's not a saxophone player. I'm just. Because I'm sure. Because you know how he kisses. Is that what you're saying? Because, I mean, you know. You know how he moves. You've got, I'm just saying, it seems like you've, you've lived in his shoes for a day. You've done your homework. Well done, Bill. You done? Hey guys, we just lost Bill Ben. He just went off air. Uh, I guess I'll be finishing this podcast on my own. I've really offended. <laughs> just having a little fun with you. You know, I now will go back and, and watch that because uh, I just took it for granted. I was like, oh yeah, that probably was him. I don't know. I didn't necessarily need to confirm right. it. When we're done taping this, go back and watch it and text <laughs> will, will. Okay. if it's him or not. Okay. All right. I will. Okay. Wow. You're really sorry. I, I went a little gung ho there. Speaking of gung ho, Ron Howard, Michael Keaton, and screenwriters Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel. I couldn't say that enough. Babalu. They all reteamed to make the 1986 film. Gung Ho, which I also have never seen. What? I know. Isn't that? It's ridiculous. I've seen scenes. No. Okay. Yeah. I've never, I don't think I've ever seen it from beginning to end. Okay, not- now that I say if, if, uh, yeah, I need, uh, I think I've only seen like large chunks of it. Okay. I'm yeah. not saying that because it's like an amazing movie and you need to run out and see it. I'm just surprised you haven't seen it. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's okay. It has some moments, but I'm just surprised you have not. Yeah. There you go. Gone hell from beginning to end. But, you know, hey, a lot of movies came out in the 80s. We can't see them all. We're going to try. Mm-hmm. And just so you know, when you do watch it, Ron Howard did not play a saxophone player. <laughs> <laughs> did not play the sax in Night Shift. Neither did he play a saxophone player in Gung Ho. Correct. Or Backdraft. All right. You have anything else for facts and trivia? You know, I was just curious as to whether or not Nevada was still the only U.S. state where prostitution is legal. And it is true. Oh, okay. Yeah. It was funny. I just did a little like Wikipedia general research on that. Despite there being a legal option, the vast majority of prostitution in Nevada takes place illegally in the metropolitan areas of Las Vegas and Reno. Like the one state where there's areas where prostitution is legal, like you can actually go. There are random counties spread about that oh, yeah. are away from the populated areas to try and you know just kind of. Yeah, wasn't there a show like the Bunny Ranch? Yeah, oh, yeah. Not that I ever watched that. No, no, no. 
I'd heard of it. Yes, I heard of it. I was, you know, never watched the episode. Yeah, I drove by it a couple times. Yeah. All right. Yeah, but that—that's really all I got, man. Um, for uh, fun facts and trivia. Uh, let's move on to the box office. This movie was released on July thirtieth, nineteen eighty-two, on a budget of six point four million. It grossed twenty-one million domestically. The movie debuted at number five on its opening week and was out of the top 10 by the fourth week of release. So it did make a little money. And we know that Ron Howard did go on to direct other movies. So just did enough to keep him working. But this is kind of weird, too, because the week it came out. So here was the top five movies when this just a, I just found this like a weird selection of films. So number one was E.T., Okay. Sure. Yeah. Makes sense. Number two, and we kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier, was The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Got it. Number three, An Officer and a Gentleman. Heard of it. Number it's a great f- movie. four, Young Doctors in Love. Ooh. Gary Marshall. No, I'm not familiar. Which is Michael McKeon and Sean Young. Because remember we were talking about, uh, look at that, I'm going back to another podcast where we were talking about, we couldn't think of any movies that Sean Young was in. Sure, right, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Young was love. And yeah, Nice Shift was number five. I just thought that was a weird top five. Movie. Oh, absolutely. Except for at. E.T., right. And Young Doctors in Love, I do remember trying to watch, and I got 10 minutes into it, and I shut it off. <laughs> so that made It sounds like a movie you would try to watch, then. Uh, God, so, God love you. Uh, God bless you, Bill. So I don't think there'll be a future podcast on Young Doctors in Love. Okay. Unless we're doing this for 20 years. And that's like the one of the last, that and Solar Babies will be the last two episodes <laughs> of, of our podcast, just so everybody knows. So we're either going to close out the show when we're done doing this podcast forever, forever. And it'll either be Solar Babies or Young Doctors in Love. Uh, brilliant. All right, uh, so moving on to reviews. When growing up in the early 80s, we loved catching sneak previews with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert to hear their reviews and watch clips from upcoming movies. Their review of the film was unanimous. Two thumbs down. What? Gene found it unfunny and forgettable. No, come on, Gene. No. Chicago guys just not representing what's happening. Roger thought the subject, prostitution, was an odd choice for a comedy. But here was a great quote from Gene when speaking about Michael Keaton. He has a bright future in the movies, I think. So he got that part right. Got that. Wow, part right. that's a zinger. Yeah, so he got that part right. So he has he a knew- bright future in the movies. Yep, that might have been an understatement. In the motion picture business. All right, so that brings us to our final thoughts. Jason, what are our final thoughts of Night Shift? Uh, I brought this up just briefly uh, just a moment ago. Henry Winkler, I think he's great in this. I uh, I think part of the reason was I was expecting Michael Keaton to be a scene stealer in this movie, which he was, of course, at times. But I think Henry Winkler nails that timid straight man in this. He really does. He has that Gene Wilder-esque performance where he just he's such a nice fellow in this movie and he just gets beat up in this movie and you and finally you know there are times when he does and i just think it's great and 
I love the chemistry that he has with Keaton. I, I wish, you know, now looking back that they had done a couple more movies together. Cause I, I just, I think, I think they're great. Michael Keaton, just being able to look, we, we, I don't think I can, I think I can speak for you, Bill as well here is, and, and our friend Marwan and our other fellow film contemporaries that we, we know and love uh, friends and uh, coworkers that we're all Keaton fans through and through. Love Michael Keaton. He can do it all. Mr. Mom, Beetlejuice, Batman. In this case, Night Shift. Even in the recent years, whether it be Birdman. I love his turn in the ridiculous comedy, the Mark Wahlberg, Will Ferrell film, The Other Guys. He plays like the police chief. He's freaking hilarious. And when he's just quoting, what's that that uh, TLC? The entire oh, movie. Yeah. He's just quoting their songs. It's just brilliant. He's hilarious. But he, then, like in this, like I talked, he can just make that turn from drama to comedy and back because to be able to do that is not an easy thing to turn it on a dime, like I mentioned, and go serious and sensitive and heartbroken. And it just in a moment's notice, you know, it reminded me, I thought Robin Williams could do that, where he was able to go from one extreme to the other. And uh, when an actor slash comedian is able to do that, I think Jim Carrey maybe can pull that off from time to time. It's extremely effective because it literally is going from one extreme to the other. It's, you know, it's a very effective, impactful uh, thing to watch. Uh, So uh, other like final thoughts when they're in jail towards the end, after they get busted for this brothel situation, after the big shootout, little uh, guest appearance there by Charles Fleischer in the jail. Love that. There's this, just this moment. So hilarious. When Chuck is saying, I, I'd rather be dead, I'd rather be dead. And then Fleischer just creepily, as just a prisoner, comes up behind him and says, you want to be dead? And Chuck turns on, he's like, huh? He's like, you you, you want to be dead? <laughs> Chuck's like, no. He's like, oh, well, you let me know if you change your mind. He's like, you'll be the first. And then Charles Fleischer just turns to Keaton and goes, Hi. <laughs> he's so creepy and he's really funny in that moment did you know that richard belzer is henry winkler's cousin i didn't know that until looking at the yeah i didn't know that yeah we've mentioned his name a couple times because he does play uh one of the pimps in this movie that's richard belzer you know he would go on his character i go on to play so many so many movies tv shows cop shows henry winkler i mentioned yeah he's great in this um I think this, you know, I am a Shelley Long fan. I, you know, she has a little bit of a reputation of being difficult to work with, but I think because of Cheers, because of Money Pit, and now this film, I I don't know. Something about her does it for me. I I just, I think she's great, despite what you hear about the behind the scenes stuff. She's, I think she's talented. I think she plays the the role of Belinda great, uh, well, in this movie. And um, I think that's, you know, I, I just think, yeah, just strong showing from all three uh, lead actors in this movie. But um, I will save the rest for my closing. And uh, I've got some deep questions and I'm going to stop rambling and let me uh, let you, I should say, uh, give your final thoughts. Yeah, just for me, um, I was just really interested on how you were going to respond to the movie, because when you told me you mm-hmm. had not seen it, I was kind of like, wow. And then watching it, I was like, oh, does this movie still play well? Because like I said, when I first saw it, I was a teenager and, you know, the, the humor 
really resonated as like a teenager. I found it kind of funny because it is, it's not really a raunchy comedy, but you know, it's right. It's low humor and you know, you get older and you're kind of like, okay, yeah, that was funny back then, but it's not not funny now, but I think I love it more for seeing where Michael King came from, seeing where Ron Howard came from. Absolutely. I was really feeling sorry for Henry, Henry Winkler in this film, which I never really noticed before watching this. That, mm-hmm. And because um, there is people that go through that where they're just pushovers. And I was yeah, like, he's glad. sympathetic. Yeah. I, I, yeah, it's a great call. I think he's very sympathetic in this movie. Yeah. yeah. And it was amazing to think like he was the fun, like the Fonz, the Fonz was huge. He oh, was yeah. beloved. He was like one of, like you, you think about like great characters in television and the Fonz is in there. He's in the top 20. Oh, easily. Time. Sure. So to see extremely him, iconic. Yeah. Play the exact opposite of that is just crazy. And then just even now, because he's kind of had this renaissance recently with Barry and just how everyone just, he's so beloved. Yeah. Um, it's just great to see that, you know, come around too, because he, he did kind of disappear after a while after Happy Days. I know he like did some directing and stuff like that, but. And I was, remember him just when he popped up in Scream. Yeah. Just like happy like, to oh, see him. Yeah. It was like, wow, where's he been? He's still doing it. He's awesome. Yeah. Very entertaining in that film. And then you're right. Yeah. And Barry, I mean, what a great turn for him. He's like writing children's books now too. Is he really? It's crazy. Yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. I came across that bit. So, yeah. So I wasn't sure if like someone had never seen this movie before, would I recommend it or not? I'm, I'm still kind of on the fence on it, but I'm like, if you're a Michael Keaton fan, you haven't seen it. You, you do need to see it. That, that I guess that's where I would put it. If you're younger and you've just discovered Michael Keaton from, you know, maybe the Spider-Man films or Birdman or something like that. And want to go see right. his earlier stuff. That's a, that's a great perspective, Bill. I didn't think about it that way. Cause I'm just hands down recommending it across the board, but I, I appreciate what you're saying. If you hadn't, if you weren't aware of these actors or, or fans necessarily of the, their work or Ron Howard as a director. Yeah. I'm not sh- Yeah. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do have some questions for you, Bill Bant. Yes, let's do some questions. Deep questions Uh-oh. by Jason Messick. So I was going to ask you, do you think Billy Blazjowski has a real disorder or is it an act? It's weird because back then it was just he'd be hyperactive. But yeah. today, yes, they would. That's a great point. Have like, it's a great have like point, Bill. Yeah. Three, if three it was made things. today, for sure. Yeah. ADD and two other. Doctors. They'd label it. Yeah. It would be labeled. It. Yeah. He'd be on medication and all that. But then, yeah, back then. Oh, no, he's hyperactive. If you had this job working the night shift at the city morgue, how much shit do you think you'd be getting done? Like, I mean, actually, like if you actually had this job, what do you what would you be doing? A lot of reading. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because it was I'm, just like, oof. If I, I actually would be kind of great. I'd be like, oh, could I, would I be able to get a lot of writing done? Maybe. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, or reading, or would I be uh, watching TV? Like one of the, like one of the guys was in the movie. Yeah. But then again, I mean, most of the TV would go off at like one o'clock in the morning. So you wouldn't even have TV at that point. 
Like if I had well, the if job it were present today, day, present today, day, that's what I mean. Present oh, day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like now. Yeah. I'd probably be the YouTube rabbit hole. Probably. <laughs> that's yeah. Probably what would happen to be honest. Here's another question for you. If you ran a prostitution ring, what would your commission be? Oh, it'd be higher than 10%. Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of what I was thinking when I was watching the movie. I'm like, Ooh, you, you're starting this business. You got, you calling the shots. You, you can uh, take what you want. Do you just take the 10% like an agent? Like he says in the movie. Yeah. I mean, like I wouldn't, ten. I wouldn't do 70. No, no. Well, yeah. No, the girl, I, the girls would still be making more. All right. Speed round. Yes. What's your favorite eighties movie about prostitution? I guess it would be risky business. Who's your favorite prostitute? Ooh. Oh, then we got to go back to risky business. Rebecca de Mornay. Hell yeah. Good answer. Right answer. Have you ever been with a prostitute? No. Do you ever want to be with a prostitute? I'd be too afraid to. Are you, Bill, Bant, in fact, a prostitute? I guess all of us in our lives at some point are a prostitute, aren't we? You ruined my last question. You and your I'm answers. I, no, that was that's great stuff. That's great stuff, man. I was gonna add, I was gonna be like Bill Bant. What do you have against prostitutes? Because I thought you were just gonna answer no, no, no. Uh, yeah, it's like with all these like really level headed, thoughtful answers. All right, do we do it over? Fucked so. up my. Okay, take two. Yes. Speed round. <laughs> What's your favorite movie about prostitution? Eighties movie. Risky business. See, I fucked it up. <laughs> Forget it. All Let's right. move on to our closing. Let's move on. Damn it. All right. All right. Uh, <laughs> I messed up. Hey, Bill. Yes. I got to thank you again, man. Thanks for choosing this movie to do on um, the All 80s Movies podcast. This one, like I said at the very start, was a delight. <laughs> I was going to make this analogy. It was like eating light ice cream. Like I enjoyed it and deal, didn't feel guilty about it. Uh, oh, good. it like it was just, it was just fun. Like I, I was, had like smile on my face the whole time. So um, just saying what I've already said and entertaining through and through. Uh, it didn't even feel like an hour and 46 minutes. I would recommend it because this, even everything from the actual, it's extremely quotable. Michael Keaton is a revelation. I think Henry Winkler is surprisingly funny playing the straight man. And it doesn't matter if you're a kid or you're an adult, you're going to laugh at the psych gags. The psych gags actually work really well in this. So it's a quintessential eighties comedy. It, um, has all the common tropes, but does it well because it's in the hands of the capable Ron Howard. So I recommend it. This was an extremely enjoyable watch and I'd, I'd watch it again in a heartbeat. So thanks, Bill. Awesome. All right. So I think that wraps it up for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Our next movie will be Bond, James Bond, 1981's For Your Eyes Only, starring Roger Moore, Carol Bouquet, and Julian Glover. As always, please subscribe and rate us. You can email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, or recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook at all80smoviespodcast or tweet us at podcastall80s. Until then, have a totally great week, everyone. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. Love brokers. <laughs> Love brokers. Yeah. <laughs>